0: So, when a body is sick, uh, we seek various forms of healing, uh, whether it's, you know, in the church, we one thing we will do is we will uh, pray. That says in James 5, to call for the elders of the church when in serious sickness, and the elders will anoint you with oil and pray for you. So that's one thing we do in the body of Christ. But we also use, of course, the medicine that God gave to us as human beings in general revelation. And so we use medicines. There's then research to try to combat disease and sickness and illness. But once a death occurs, once a body expires due to a sickness... We cease, of course, seeking a cure. It's just the way that it works. Death has taken over and run its course, and we're no longer looking for a cure for that sickness uh, that exists. And what we've read about in Romans 3, verse or Romans 1 verse 18 all the way to 320 which we finished last week is God's proclamation that mankind is dead in trespasses and sins we can try to reform mankind all we want to we can try to rehabilitate mankind all we want to but what God needs to do is resurrect mankind from uh, the dead and this is possible of course by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, the gospel message that we are studying here uh, in the book of Romans. But we've seen that we are sold unto sin. The, The verse or the phrase that we saw last week in Romans 3 verse 10 is that we are under sin. The immoral world is under sin. The moral world is under sin. The religious world is under sin. And and just in case we might have argued back and said, no, certainly there are some who are good. Certainly there are some who are righteous. Certainly there are some who seek God. Paul went to great lengths, as we saw last week, to say there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who seeks God. There is none with the fear of God before their eyes. And of course, all of this is in comparison to God. Not in comparison to one another, but in comparison to God. God is righteous. God is pure. God is perfect, and mankind is in our fallen state are so far from who uh, he is now had god not sent his son had jesus not died on the cross uh that would be the story of the bible and it'd be finished at romans 3 verse 20 paul could have said sincerely paul the end we're dead it's over But fortunately, there's a verse 21 and a lot of verses uh, that come after that, and that's why it's such a beautiful, hinge little section that we're in, because Paul says in verse 21, But now, we've looked and we've looked and we've looked. We've searched every nook and cranny, and we've tried to find a way for us to become righteous like God. We've tried to find someone who is righteous like God. We looked everywhere, Paul said, in every form of society, in every part of the world, in every human heart, and there's no one who is righteous like God. So, what can we do? Is there any righteousness that we can receive from God? We've come to the conclusion at this point in Paul's book In this this, uh, letter to the Romans, we've come to the conclusion we can't get righteousness from ourselves or from any other thing. The only only place we can look now is up. Is there any righteousness from God? And Paul beautifully and wonderfully announces to us there in verse 21, but now the righteousness of God. God has been manifested apart from the law, so apart from working for it, uh, although the law, he says, and the prophets uh, bear witness uh, to it. So we are entering now into just a beautiful section of the book of Romans, but this paragraph that we just read this morning really is the center, it's the heart of a lot of things. It's the heart of Romans in one sense because it's the pivot of everything. We're lost, but now here we discover a way in which God is able to pour out his love and grace and mercy and righteousness toward us. It's the heart of the Bible because the Bible bears witness to the lostness of man, but here we see the way in which we are saved from our lostness. And it's the heart of God because we're discovering that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. When you read the stories of Jesus dying on the cross, you're reading the account of what he did to save the world. When you read Romans 3 verse 21 and following, you're reading of how he did it on the cross. Theologically, what happened when Jesus was there uh, upon that tree? And Paul is explaining that to the early church, and he's explaining it, of course, by extension uh, to you uh, and to me. One scholar named Dr. Leon Morris said it this way, this is possibly the most important single paragraph ever written. He doesn't have any other qualifier like in Romans or in the Bible. It's just ever. If you really think about it, what we're studying and thinking about, the righteousness of God that we get apart from the law, this is a massive subject. We saw in the first section of Romans that our sin and unrighteousness puts us under what is called the wrath of God. We're under sin, we're under wrath. But this passage is what helps us to be transferred from wrath to God's grace or favor, to go from being under sin to under God's righteousness, from being under God's judgment to being under God's justification. So just a beautiful section that we have uh, in front of us. So what we're going to look at really simply is what is the righteousness of God? How do we receive it? And what does it do to us? And what does it say about God? And then finally, since it is accessed by faith, what does faith then produce? A few questions that Paul asked at the end of this little section that we're studying today. So first, let's look at our definition of the righteousness of God. He says that there, verse 21, the righteousness of God has been now made clear or manifested apart from the law or the works of the law. There's nothing you can do, in other words, to get the righteousness of God. What does that mean, the righteousness of God? This is a good thing that a person can receive. So what is the righteousness of God? Some of your Bibles probably translate these words a little bit differently. They might not say the righteousness of God. They might say the uprightness of God or the approval of God. Or the acceptance of God. Or as one translation puts it, to be right with God himself. So to have this standing with God. In other words, this is to be declared right with God by being declared freed from the guilt of sin. You know, on Wednesday nights we're studying Proverbs. And if you've been there or if you've listened online, one of the things that you know is that throughout Proverbs, Solomon talks about righteousness all the time. All the time. But in Proverbs, when he talks about righteousness, it's a lifestyle in contrast to another choice. So the lifestyle of righteousness versus the life decisions and style of wickedness or uh, wisdom versus folly. It's just like the way that you live. Uh, Is that a righteous person? And we might be saying what we're saying is more of a, uh, are they living a righteous kind of life? Are they good people? Are they walking with the Lord? Are they making good selections, decisions in life? Are they holy? Are they set apart? Are they sanctified? Are they living a righteous kind of life? But this righteousness that Paul is talking about here isn't so much talking about behavior, although behavior will follow when you really get this and understand this, but he's talking about position before God. In other words, this is what you are in God's sight you can receive a thing called the righteousness of God. Or to use another word, the worth of God. That he can look upon a human being who used to be what we saw saw in Romans 1 through 3, lost, dead, far from him, not seeking him, under wrath due to the unrighteousness and ungodliness that we participated in. But we can be transferred to a place where God says, you have so much worth in my sight. You are accepted in my sight. You are upright in my sight. You are standing in my sight. You do not fall, but you make it in my sight. You walk into the holy throne room of God with lightning and thundering and, and, and angels bowing down before Him, and you make it. You exist. You can last in His sight. And I think this is beautiful because we live in a world, I think, where people are constantly self-abhorring. So many of the things that we do, so many of the crazy things that we say, and the, the, the stuff that we get ourselves entangled up in, so much of it stems from this understanding that I'm, there's sin inside of me. There are things that I don't want to do that I just am enslaved to do. Things that I do want to do that I don't find the power to actually do. And there's this sense of worthlessness personally but to understand that you can be transferred from that into a position where God says, I love you, you have worth to me, standing before me. This is a beautiful reality, a wonderful truth that you and I can receive. This is not just security for us at death, but acceptance by God right now. It's powerful. The righteousness of God. He can give it to you and to me. Now, before we look at how it comes, let's see a few different things about it that Paul mentions. First of all, notice there uh, at the end of verse 21 that he says this righteousness of God, it was actually uh, anticipated in the years before the cross. Sometimes we wonder about that. What about all the Old Testament saints? What about people who existed before the cross of Jesus? They didn't know necessarily that he was going to die on the cross, that the Son of God would be the Messiah. That wasn't abundantly clear to them. We look back on the prophecies that they spoke and say, okay, it's clear to us now, looking back, but it wasn't clear to them then. So what about them? Were they anticipating? Notice that Paul says that the law and the prophets bear witness to it. In other words, as you read the Old Testament, you discover there was an anticipation that the righteousness of God would come and that God would make a way for his righteousness to be deposited into the hearts and lives of human beings. And you see this in a lot of different ways in the Old Testament. I think David is a really good example of this. If you read so many of his prayers in the Psalms, So many of the things that David prayed were very New Testament in nature. In other words, he would pray, God, cleanse my heart. God, purge me or wash me with your blood. There were things like that that he would cry out and pray to God. He didn't seem to be completely alluding to the sacrificial system, but he had this understanding, God, you can deal with my heart. You can forgive my life. Or like the prophet Isaiah, when in the first chapter of his prophecy, he announced to the nation of Israel that your sins are like scarlet, but God can make them white as snow. There was the concept that it wouldn't be through a bunch of working for it that they would become white as snow, but that God would actually take their sins like scarlet, that stain of sin, and that he would purge them and purify them. Or there were just timelines in the Old Testament, like when Abraham, he got all these promises from God, and he believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, like we'll see in Romans chapter 4, but then... 400 years later, a little more than that actually, his descendants then received the law from God on Mount Sinai. So you have this huge gap in time. He gets righteousness and then... 400 plus years later, there's a requirement, there's a law, there's a way to live before God. And just that timeline would help us anticipate, okay, you don't get righteousness from keeping a set of requirements. You get righteousness from God. He must deposit it into uh, your account. And the law and the prophets, he says there in verse 21, bear witness to that great uh, reality. Now, notice how it comes, verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So we've already seen that we can't do anything to get the righteousness of God. We aren't righteous in and of ourselves. So how do we access it? This is a good question. Did Jesus, when he died on the cross and made a way for man to receive the righteousness of God, the approval of God, the worth of God, the uprightness before God, did Jesus, when he rose from the dead, to verify and validate what he did on the cross, did his resurrection just put the righteousness of of God upon all of mankind universally? And what Paul announces is no, the way that you get that righteousness of God that is available through what Jesus did, he says, through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So there's a faith in Jesus. There's a belief in Jesus. Notice how he says it. He says, it's faith not in what Jesus said. He actually even comment, doesn't even say here, faith in what Jesus did, although that's part of it. But what it is, is faith in Jesus. You have to open up your heart to a person. You have to open up your heart to Jesus. You have to believe in Jesus. You have to say, he is the righteousness of God. He lived the life that I could never have lived, and He died the death I should have died, and I want to believe in Him. I want to trust Him. I want to lean upon Him and invite Him into my life, that He might forgive me and cleanse me of all of my sin, and that I might receive the righteousness of God. It comes through faith in Him, through belief in Him. You must open up your life to him and just so that we're clear because Paul has been making this announcement to us over and over again he's told us that the immoral man needs Jesus that the moral man needs Jesus the religious man needs Jesus but he repeats that idea and sort of encapsulates it for us when he says there's no distinction all have sinned verse 23 and fall short of the glory of God what does that mean that we've all fallen short of the glory of God. You can really take this line in a few different ways. One way that you might take this is that God made us in his image, and we fell short of that image. Another way to take this is that God's glory, in one sense or one form, is God's presence, and through sin we lost the presence of God. But you can also take glory to be praise. To glory over someone is to rejoice over them. And through sin, we lost God's glorying over us as people. We lost his rejoicing over mankind. But the biggest way is that we lost God's glory, his righteous standard. We fell short of his perfection. And so we lost his presence. We lost his image. We lost his praise and rejoicing we can get it all back through the blood of Jesus Christ. But all have sinned, he says, and fallen short of the glory of God. Like I've been saying and trying to illustrate in various ways, it doesn't matter how we stack up against other people, it's how we stack up against the glory of God. You can be on top of the highest mountain or in the Grand Canyon and try to reach up and grab a star and you won't be able to do it. You have to get God's righteousness into your life. You can't reach up to God's glory. You can't attain it through church attendance. You can't attain it through doing your one good work a day. You can't attain it through any pilgrimage. You can't attain it through any religious ceremony. You can't attain it through some kind of religious experience or a very holy kind of feeling and a type of environment. You can't attain it in that way. You have to be given the righteousness of God because we've all fallen short of the glory of God. All right, so this is like the cool news that Paul is announcing because those last uh, four or five weeks we've all just every week we walk away just like, well that was a bummer of a Bible study. You know, (laughs) we're just so lost. We're so dead. We're so under sin. But that horrible news is helpful to us to see the glory of the good news of the cross of Christ. Now a righteousness of God has appeared. It's been manifested apart from the law. We looked and tried to get it from it, but now we find a way to get God's righteousness apart from our own doing, apart from our own works. Now, the next question, verse 24, is what does this righteousness of God, when you get it by faith in Jesus, what does it do to you? Now, really, from here through chapter 8, And really, you can make a case through the rest of the book of Romans, but specifically here through chapter 8, we're going to see what the righteousness of God put into our bodies, our accounts. We're going to see what it does to us. But just here in these verses, Paul says a few things that the righteousness of God deposited to us that it does to us, okay? So let's read these things together. We are, and we are, verse 24, justified by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, and then he repeats the concept that he's hammering home here, to be received, verse 25, by faith. So one of the things that this righteousness of God does to you is that it justifies you, verse 24, by his grace as a gift. Justification is magnificent. Okay, it's a, it's a concept that comes from the courtroom. And the idea, uh, the opposite of justification or being justified is being condemned. Okay, guilty. So when through the blood of Jesus, God looks upon you or he looks upon me and he says, you are now justified. I pronounce you justified. It is him striking down his gavel as the righteous judge and saying, you came in here condemned you came in here guilty. You were, Romans 1.18 to 3.20, you were unrighteous. You were guilty. You were condemned. But when you receive God's justification, you leave condemnation, and he says of you, you are guiltless in my sight. The same innocence that he sees in his own son, he sees in people who have trusted Jesus for their salvation. He sees you as completely without error, as completely without sin. He sees you completely innocent and guiltless, justified uh, in his sight. Now, this is a beautiful truth that if we could just get it. I think it would help us with so much of the stuff that we just carry around. The guilt, the shame, the woe is me, this is just who I am kind of stuff when God is saying, That is not who you are any longer. Not only have I declared you justified, but I have made you so. That is who you are to me. It's not just some like rose colored you know, glasses that I'm looking at you with, like, you know, when, like your grandma gives you a compliment. It's like, you just, at least the grandmas I've had, it's like, you just take it with a grain of salt. You know, it's like, thank you for complimenting me, grandma, but I feel like I could be a really bad dude. And you'd be like, oh, I'm so proud of you. You know, you're just so wonderful. Is it that? Does God just get this weird complex about us where, he, you know, he's just not conscious of reality? No. He's conscious of the truest of what is true. He looks upon us and he cuts through all of it and says, by the blood of my son, you are justified in my sight. The the opposite of being uh, condemned. I think when we really get this, we really begin to kind of go, whoa, if that's what I am, that's what I want to actually live like. Then he says, secondly, there in verse 24, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Not only do you get justification, but you get redemption, he says. Now, if justification comes from the courtroom, redemption comes from a couple of places, it comes from the commercial sector. In Paul's day, the idea of someone who is being redeemed or redeeming something would be to take something that was uh, perhaps enslaved and to purchase it or them and buy them out of that captivity or that slavery. It also would come from a military kind of mindset. Someone who perhaps was taken as a prisoner of war and then needed to be ransomed out of their captivity to be set free. So you and I, it's not hard to imagine what we were enslaved to and what we were held captive by. We were held captive by sin. We were held captive by the devil. We were held captive by the world. We were enslaved to our own sin, as we saw in Romans 1 through 3. We were just bound in it, unable to escape from it. But when you place your faith in Jesus and the righteousness of God comes into your life, you receive uh, redemption. You receive freedom you are no longer enslaved you are no longer held captive but you have been bought with a price and you have been liberated liberated from guilt liberated from punishment and liberated as we'll see as we study through the book of romans liberated from the power and the effectiveness of sin in your life now we recognize a struggle with sin don't we every one of us has already sinned today We've already all sinned today. And so this is, a, this is a reality in our lives. This is a reality in our hearts. The, the thoughts, the patterns of our thoughts and minds, the jealousies, the bitterness, the envies, the covetousness, the hatred, the anger, the lack of forgiveness, it's all there. It's very strong. So what God is saying, however, is that when you become a believer and my righteousness comes into you, I'm actually setting you free from that. And the process of this life as we walk with him is experiencing that redemption and tapping into the freedom that is ours positionally in Jesus more and more. But we have been set free uh, from all of that. All right, so redemption. I got, a, I got some of your attention when I told you that we'd all sinned today, didn't I? Some of you were like, what? <laughs> that was a newsflash for some of you. It shouldn't be. You did. <laughs> okay. Now, in verse 25, he tells us another thing that we receive. We talked about justification and redemption. But notice this in verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Propitiation is not a word that you and I use every day. You probably didn't use this word this last week, propitiation. It's a word that Bible translators have had a hard time giving a more user-friendly phraseology to. Uh, The NIV, I think, says the sacrifice of atonement. Even that is hard for us to really understand just without some thought. What does that mean, the sacrifice of atonement? What does it mean that God took Jesus, the Father took the Son, and put him forward, and this is the cross. He put him forward on the cross as a propitiation by his blood. What does that mean? Now, some people think that all that it means is simply that he was a cleansing agent for our sin by his blood. So on the cross, his blood flowed, and that blood became the cleansing agent for our sin. That when you place your faith in Jesus, your sin is cleansed. So some Bibles might say uh, that he was put forth as the expiation, the the cleansing of our sin, the washing of our uh, sin. But the idea of propitiation actually, or this word, is a little further than just that as Jesus was on the cross, he was making a way for our sins to be cleansed. That was part of it. But propitiation has an idea of not just being uh, aimed at you and me, but being aimed at God. And that God, who we saw in Romans 1.18, his wrath was revealed against the ungodliness and unrighteousness of man. That wrath was propitiated. That wrath was satisfied in Jesus on the cross. It says in Isaiah chapter 53, which is explicitly a prophecy about Jesus dying on the cross, it says it was the will of, of God to crush him. Jesus on the cross said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That wrath, where did it go? Did it just evaporate into the ether? Did God just make a decision to be uh, where he was angry at sin, but now he's angry no longer? No, he's just as we'll see. That couldn't, he couldn't just evaporate His own wrath. It went somewhere, and it went into His own Son in the cross of Christ. God's wrath was satisfied in the body of Jesus there upon the cross. And that's difficult for us to consider. Part of the reason that it's difficult for us to consider is that so much of the idolatry throughout the generations of mankind's existence has the idea of propitiation in it. That there are deities that need to be satisfied. But the difference could not be more strong than between the propitiation that God provides in His Son and the propitiation that man has to somehow muster through fruit sacrifices, grain sacrifices, animal sacrifices to try to appease God's wrath. That's not how we get it. God is the sacrificer, not man. God is the initiator, not man. God sets forth the sacrifice that will appease his heart and mind and holy and just nature. And that sacrifice is his son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, not to be a good teacher, not to be a prophet, but to be the satisfaction of his holy requirement over mankind. So what we get from the righteousness of God is we get God's wrath satisfied. And what is the opposite of God's wrath The second that his wrath is satisfied, this is what this word actually means, it's not just that his wrath is satisfied, it means that it's satisfied and then his love and grace and compassion and mercy and presence comes rushing towards you and me. We lost and fell short of the glory of God, but now it is unleashed upon you if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. That's so cool. You could just picture in your mind a dam that is holding back a large body of water and an explosion destroying that dam. And now the rushing of all of that water into that valley that has been created as a result of that dam. That dryness that was there is now over with if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. God's wrath has been satisfied, therefore releasing. What does he say? We've been justified by his grace as a gift. Now his grace comes rushing toward you. You've traded out the wrath for God's favor, God's grace, God's love, God's mercy, God's compassion. That is what is now ours in Jesus Christ. So we get quite a lot uh, because of the righteousness of. Uh, of God god 's loving, god 's stooping, god's coming to rescue us, God giving himself. This is what we get through and in uh, the work that Jesus did uh, for you and for me. Now he says in verse at the end of verse twenty five, something very interesting about what the cross says about god 's nature. One of the big questions is, You know, because it's not that Adam and Eve sinned, and mankind fell, and then Jesus just right then came and died on the cross, and now all of human history is looking backwards at the cross of Jesus. No, there was quite a bit of human history before the cross. So what about all of those people? And what about the wrath of God toward that sin? How was that dealt with? This is what Paul says at the end of verse 25. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over the former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of one who has faith in Jesus. What this means, what Paul is saying, is that the cross demonstrates God's righteous character. There was a lot of sin that happened before the cross, and there's been a lot of sin that has happened after the cross. One of the questions that mankind has asked perpetually is, if God is good, if God is pure, if God is righteous, then why does he allow fill in the blank? And usually when we ask that question, we're so short-sighted about our very nature and the nature of God. You know, the last time God didn't allow fill-in-the-blank was a universal flood that destroyed the earth as we know it. So, or all of mankind upon it. So, so often when we say, if God is righteous, why does he allow blank? We're not thinking about anything in our own hearts. We're thinking about vile things that others have done, but not things that we have done. It's hard for us to consider that if God did not pass over, have some uh, patience for the blank, then he couldn't have any patience for what's here inside of our own hearts. So where, though, did God deal with all of that? Everything that came before and everything that came after. Did God just forget it? No, he can't because he's just. So what did he do? He patiently endured it and waited for the cross of his own son so that he could be and and punish the sin of mankind all of mankind past present and future in the body of his own son upon that cross so that everyone who has ever been saved by god before the cross or after the cross has been saved by the blood of jesus And that everyone who has tapped into the blood of Jesus, no matter how great or small their revelation of God was, it was always accessed by faith. That's how Abraham was saved. That's how everyone has been saved. A belief that God is just and, as Paul said there in verse 26, the justifier. That he's the one who must save us from our sins. So this helps us know that even in the Old Testament, people were saved by grace through faith and that if their faith was genuine and real jesus was the ultimate sacrifice who would save all of the old testament saints as his cross is timeless in application which is so helpful to us in our own lives and hearts because we need his cross to be timeless for us as well he is just paul says in verse 26 and the justifier all right so we've looked at a lot we've thought about a lot today. Um, and, you know, maybe your brain is a little hurting right now. So let's just think about these final three things, okay? Because what was the big way? How does this all come in? By faith, right? We receive it by faith. So the question is then, what is, doesn't faith then mean a few different things? So here's how Paul says it, okay? This is what faith then, just some practical things that it does to you and me now. He says, then, verse 27, what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So the fact that we receive the righteousness of God, not by our works, but by faith, the first thing Paul says that that does to us is it kills any possibility of bragging about ourselves spiritually. It kills boasting. You know, it it kills the ability to look down at other people. It levels the playing field. Everybody receives the righteousness of God by faith. That's the only way. You can't work yourself into it. So it kind of helps us understand there is no boasting. We all needed boasting the Lord. That's very helpful. So if in your own heart, when you feel that, t- that thing inside you that wants to rise up like the Pharisees of old and broadcast your you know, spiritual attainments or something like that, and you, you know, want to be seen in a certain light spiritually, uh, understand that the cross of Jesus and accessing it by, it by faith has killed the potential to boast. It all comes from Jesus by belief and faith. Then another thing he says, or, verse 29, is is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. So again, uh, everyone accesses this by faith. The Jew and the Gentile alike, we are all in need of a Savior. We all access it through faith. So not only does faith kill boasting, faith just levels humanity. So you think, maybe in your mind's eye, of the most hardened criminal, either that you know or that you've heard of, you think of of someone like that and then you think of like a little old lady who comes and gives you chocolate chip cookies and just loves on you and pinches your cheek and gives you warm fuzzies inside. You think about someone like that, and the reality is we, they are both leveled before God. Both are in need of justification by faith. So all, we are one. Jews, Gentiles, we are one. It levels mankind. And then finally, verse 31 Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So we might be tempted to say, okay, a righteousness of God is here apart from the law. So let's throw out the law. But Paul tells us, no, actually, faith doesn't overthrow the law. Faith upholds the law. You say, what does that mean? Well, Paul said in Galatians that the law is like a guardian for us or some translations say it, a schoolmaster or a tutor for us. So why did God give the law? Well, a minor reason that God gave the law is because people are bad. So there needs to be some like rules to regulate us. You know, when when God gave the law originally, the Ten Commandments, The ceremonial law, uh, the laws for the nation of Israel, you have to remember, they were on this massive camping trip, a couple million people all living together. If I go camping with like 10 people, it's like, okay, let's start some ground rules right here. This is my zone. (laughs) That's your zone. I mean, you have to have like certain like, you know, when the trash can gets full, you got to take it out. So God gave these laws. Like there's your neighbor and his wife. Don't go into his tent with his wife. That's a law to kids. Once you do, Chaos happens, right? So that's part of what the law is about. It's like the suppression of evil. Uh, But the law also, a big reason for it, it's like a tutor to help us understand, I've fallen short of the glory of God. Here's this standard that God has given, and I cannot meet it. So faith and understanding that I can't get God's righteousness through the law, but only by faith in Jesus' work on the cross, faith in Jesus himself, that faith actually upholds the validity and the value of the law. So just, that's what he's saying. Faith levels mankind. Faith um, upholds the significance of the law, and faith kills boasting. So you might remember David. He loved the Lord. He struggled pretty significantly with sin at various moments in his life. A time came where he was caught in adultery and murder as a result. Nathan the prophet rebuked him for it. One of the things that David prayed in Psalm 51 is he said this, Psalm 51 verse 7, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. In the Old Testament times, especially at the Passover when the original Passover occurred, they would take a hyssop branch, it's like a plant, and they would take it and they would dip it in the blood of the lamb and they would then take that hyssop like a paintbrush, they would take it and brush the blood upon the house. David looked at God in the midst of his sin and he says, God, you need to purge not my house, not my door, not the altar, not the mercy seat. You need to purge me with hyssop. You need to take the blood and apply it to me that I might be clean, that I might be washed. The blood is what David wanted applied. How did he say he wanted it applied? Well, he went back into his you know, vocabulary biblically and said, Hyssop. What is the hyssop in the passage we just studied this morning? It's faith. It's faith. Take faith, my faith, in what Jesus did. Dip it in his blood and apply it to my heart and wash me and make me clean. Belief in Jesus. Trust in Jesus. Confidence in Jesus. So we need the Lord so badly, but when we get the Lord, man, what he does to us. I heard of a pastor who told the men in his church, he said, you need to say these three things every single day. You need to say, I am made in God's image. I am filled with God's spirit, and I am part of God's plan on earth. That's what he has redeemed us, justified us. That's the propitiation, the righteousness of God that we have received. I am in his image. I have his spirit, and I'm part of his plan here on earth. Don't believe the devil or your own mind that tells you otherwise. Amen? Amen. Lord, we thank you so much for the blood. The blood, the blood, the blood that has washed us and cleansed us and made us whiter than snow as we believed in you. We thank you, Lord. And we pray, Father, that you'd continue to open our minds to have a deeper understanding of these incredible things, Lord, that you've done for us. Thank you, Father, that you uh, have transferred us from wrath against our evil sin and now grace, favor, favor mercy, good standing, worth before you. Father, we thank you for that. We thank you, Lord. We thank you, we thank you. And we rejoice, Lord, in you this morning. And as we're praying, the reality, the reality of this is that you must place your faith in Jesus Christ for these things to occur in your life and in your heart. And I'm fairly certain that there are some people sitting here today and you've yet to say, I place my faith in Jesus. I place my trust in Jesus. He wants to put his righteousness in you, but you must trust him, you must believe in him, you must have faith in what he did for you upon that cross. It is the only way for the wrath of God to be satisfied. And I just wanna ask this morning, I want to pray for you. I want to pray with you, if that's you today. Would you raise your hand right where you're at? You can look up at me. I want to pray with you right now and ask that Jesus Christ would forgive you. God bless you, brother. Is there anybody else? Please, this morning, you want to know the Lord. I see you there, brother. God bless you. Is there anyone else today? It's time for you to lean upon Jesus. You cannot work yourself to to God's position You must receive it from God. That worth, that righteousness can be yours, but you must believe in what Jesus did for you upon that cross. Is there anyone else this morning to join these two brothers to say yes to Christ? God bless you, I see you. Is there anyone else this morning? He cares for you, he cares for your life, he cares for your heart. God bless you, brother. Father, we come before you as a church. We love this gospel message. We love this precious blood of Jesus. We seemingly, Lord, just know that we can't exhaust it with our vocabulary. We can't say it enough or praise you enough for it. And Father, we long to preach it and say it and sing about it and have it firm inside of our hearts. And for the four of you who raised your hand this morning and anyone today who I have not seen, I want you in your heart to say to God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Thank you for sending Jesus to take my place upon that cross. Thank you for raising him from the grave. I believe him and trust in him only for my forgiveness. Come into my life and help me to live a life for you that brings you honor, oh God. And you pray it in faith, you believe in the Lord, you trust in the Lord and the Bible teaches that you are saved from your sin and that you are made righteous in the sight of God. We thank you, Father. We praise you and we we rejoice in you this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. Let's stand together, church. If you prayed this morning, please, on your way out, I want you to... Not only tell the people that you're sitting with right now, I just prayed to receive Christ as my Lord and Savior, but on your way out, tell the people holding these books in their hands in the Welcome Center, I prayed with Pastor Nate. We want to get you started on the right foot on your new life in and with Jesus Christ. Father, we love you. We pray that you'd help us to live a life of faith and trust and confidence, Lord, in you, and to receive these beautiful blessings lord that you have given to us and we sing to you now lord jesus in your name we pray amen let's sing to the lord this morning